Well, good morning, church family, and certainly an incredible time of worship this morning. I hope that blessed you as much as it did me. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Jordan. I'm the youth director here at Harvest, and it is great to be with you and a special privilege for me to be able to open up God's word with you now. If you've got your Bibles with you, as I hope you do, turn them, open them and turn to the book of Philippians, where we will be in chapter 1, verses 18 to 26 this morning. And uh, I think that we could all say without much worry that uh, there certainly has been much that has changed in our lives over the last four months, hasn't there? It's clearly evident just in the change of vocabulary that we've seen over these last few weeks with phrases like Zoom fatigue and physical distancing, words like asymptomatic becoming a part of our regular vocabulary. Four months ago, the need for masks in public spaces was something only found in different parts of the world or in science fiction. Sports without spectators is still just weird, and if you're anything like my family, we have almost completely run out of things to watch on Disney+. Much has changed, and much is certainly different for us. But if there's anything positive that has came out of the changes that resulted from COVID-19, it's that people have finally come to their senses and have started to appreciate the game of golf. What can I say? It's about time. Welcome. Welcome. Joking aside, we know that there certainly has been much that's changed in our lives temporarily for the duration of this pandemic. Hopefully it's and prayerfully it's over soon, but there's every indication that the changes that we have seen over these last four, almost five months, will have results that last long term. But there is one thing that hasn't changed. It's one thing that'll never change. That is the mission that we have been called to as followers of Jesus Christ. God is building his kingdom. That's one thing that a pandemic can never stop. And God wants to use you and I, he wants to use our faithful witness to impact hearts and lives for eternity. The Apostle Paul was no stranger to difficult circumstances. In fact, as he wrote the letter that we find ourselves in this morning, he was in the midst of a very challenging set of circumstances. And yet he held to an unwavering joy in his faith and in his commitment to fulfilling the mission that God had given him to complete. We are returning this morning to our series titled Joy Unleashed from the book of Philippians. And our passage, as I mentioned already, comes from Philippians 1. And hopefully this morning we will see that there is great joy to be found in our faithful witness to the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's turn our attention to God's word now. Follow along with me as I read Philippians chapter 1, starting in the second half of verse 18 to verse 26. These are God's words to us this morning. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, This will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life 
or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let me pray for us before we unpack these words together. God Almighty, we come before you this morning in Father, dire need to hear from you. There is much uncertainty. There is much fear. There is much anxiety in our world. There is many challenges and difficulties represented by the many people who are with us gathered to hear your word this morning. And so, Father, we ask and pray that you would speak to us from your word. God, we pray that your word would bring comfort to those who are hurting, that it would bring hope to those who are hopeless that it would teach and instruct all of us in the ways that you desire for us to live our lives for the glory and the fame of your name. Father, would it rebuke those who are here rebellious, challenging you and your word by the way they are living their lives. But God, above all else, we ask as we have declared already that you would be magnified in this time. These are your words to us carried for years and years and years, that we may have the opportunity to hear you speak to us right now. So do that, Father, we pray. Move in power to accomplish your purposes through your word. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, as a faithful witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, I must fulfill the kingdom-building work that he has for me. Now that phrase, faithful witness, should bring to mind for us that of a servant or one who represents another. So if we are going to be that faithful servant or that faithful representative of Jesus in this world, see this first, I must commit courageously. Now the Apostle Paul was currently experiencing imprisonment in Rome and that was of great concern for the church at Philippi. So in order to encourage him and express their solidarity with him in the mission that he had been called to, the believers sent to him a man named Epaphroditus with a gift to support Paul in his time in Rome. And that was likely the reason that Paul wrote this letter back to them to express his gratitude and to encourage them in their faith as he was told of their great concern for him. Which brings us then to verse 18, where even as he was imprisoned, cut off from his ministry and from those whom he loved, even while people tried to harm Paul and discredit his ministry, his perspective is, look there, yes, and I will rejoice. I will continue to have joy no matter what. Why? Verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. The 
This that Paul refers to in that verse is a reference to the hardship that he was currently dealing with, specifically the imprisonment he found himself in. And as he navigates these issues, he's able to do so with joy because he knows that deliverance is coming. Interestingly enough, the Greek word that Paul uses for deliverance there is the word soteria, which is the Greek word that we get our word salvation from. Salvation is coming, Paul believes. Whether it be the temporal deliverance and salvation in freedom from his imprisonment, or whether it be eternal salvation and deliverance, eternal vindication by God from all of the hardship that Paul had faced for the sake of the gospel here. Either way, whatever the result of this current situation he, find himself, he finds himself in, Paul wants his readers to know that his main concern is not what happens, but it is what he says next in verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, that first part he talks about there, he's not speaking of being ashamed as in the humiliation or the guilt that we so often associate shame to come with. This isn't like the, you know, pants fall down while you're doing a presentation kind of shame. But this is the shame that comes from abandoning the truth of the gospel. In fact, as one commentator put it, if Christ can be magnified through the unflinching fearlessness of believers, he can be shamed through their cowardice. Paul's expectation and hope was that he would remain firmly founded on the rock that is Jesus Christ and the gospel that has changed him. Not to bring shame upon himself or more importantly, to bring shame upon the name of Jesus through his unfaithfulness or through the abandoning of the truths that he claimed to represent, but instead to hold firmly to his belief and hold firmly to the gospel. He continues, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ would be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He hoped also, you see, that he would with great courage not just hold to the truths that he believed, not just not abandon the truths that he believed, but that he would courageously honor Jesus Christ in all the things that he does, no matter the result, whether that be continued life here or whether that be death. And you see, Paul couldn't rest on his past successes with this. This present challenge that he experienced required full courage to ensure that his commitment to honoring Jesus in all that he did remained the same, even to the point of laying down his life for the sake of the gospel, knowing that all that he did was for the purpose of God's kingdom being advanced. confident commitment that Paul had to these things is because of the salvation that he knew would come, whether that be temporal freedom from his current circumstances or whether that be eternal salvation and vindication for all that he experienced. And he knew, and he could have confidence in that, he knew that would come for four key reasons. We see them here. First, the prayers of faithful saints. 
We know that God loves to move and work and accomplish his purposes through the prayers of the faithful. And so with an army of believers behind Paul, lifting God, lifting him up to God in all of these things, he can draw confidence that God will work on his behalf. The second reason for his confidence is the working of the Spirit. Paul knew and was keenly aware of the fact that the Holy Spirit was applied to and supplied to believers to strengthen and embolden those who faithfully witness and commit to living out the gospel. This should be bringing to mind for us what Jesus himself said in Mark 13, 11. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. The third reason for Paul's confidence was the faithfulness of God. Paul knew and believed what it was that he wrote just earlier in this letter, that God would bring all things to completion. For those who are not ashamed, God will accomplish his purposes and keep his promises. For those who are faithful to him, God will deliver those who love and serve him courageously. If not in this life, certainly in the one to come. And lastly, Paul's confidence comes from the willingness that he had to lay it all on the line. Because you see, perseverance is a mark of the follower, of the genuineness of a follower of Jesus Christ. And Paul's willingness to go the distance, knowing his call, Understanding the privilege that it was to joyfully endure all of these things for the sake of the kingdom work that he had been called to, Paul was willing to go the distance. He was committed to the work that he was called to, obedient to the Lord, and courageous to be willing to put his own life on the line knowing the faithfulness of the God he served. Knowing the strength of the spirit she had at work within him and the prayers of those he had behind him. See, fulfilling the kingdom-building work that God has for us requires courageous commitment. And could we honestly say that we really haven't been stretched in this yet? Speaking personally of us right now, we really have little to no experience when it comes to having to courageously commit to obeying the Lord. Too many Christians are okay with courageless complacency, hiding their faith, unwilling or afraid to let people know where they were or what they did on a Sunday. Too nervous to put a lawn sign in front of their home for fear of what that might mean to those around them. But the time is coming. It's getting more and more intense for followers of Jesus Christ in our culture today. And commitment to the gospel and the call of Christ will take great courage. 
Dr. Michael Haken, who's the professor of, of church history and biblical spirituality, said in a webinar that he expects to see Christians imprisoned for holding to biblical views of gender and sexuality in his lifetime. The battle lines are being drawn out there, and it's going to get harder to parent your kids. It's going to take a hyper-vigilance and brutal intentionality to be careful for your kids about what it is that they are hearing at school or to help them process what they see on the internet or hear on the playground. It's going to get harder in your workplace because holding to a high standard of what God's word says might mean that you lose your job. Or at the very least might mean that you don't get considered for that promotion. It might mean being cast out from your family or losing friendships. Or it might even mean, whether it be in our lifetime or our children's, that we face prison time for these things. Do you have the confidence in Jesus Christ to commit courageously to the work that he has for you to do? I hope you'll take the time to consider that. You see, courageous commitment starts in the little things for us. It starts in the conversations that we have with non-believers, not shying away from what we believe or letting them know who we serve. It could be as simple as inviting somebody to view a lo- uh, the live stream. It could be as easy as you putting out a lawn sign offering prayer to those who would travel by your home. These seemingly insignificant choices of courageous commitment to the mission and mandate that we have received are steps in the right direction to becoming a faithful, courageous witness to the mission. And understand this, these are no small thing. Because they are tools to be used in the hands of an almighty God who can do incredible things. Over time, these small decisions make courageous commitment in the quote-unquote big things much easier as it becomes a pattern in our lives. And as we see God move and work through these things, there is great joy to be found. So are you in? Jesus called his followers to take up their cross and follow me in Mark chapter 8. In John 16, he told his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. Or as the New American Standard Version says, but take courage, for I have overcome the world. The courage that we need to faithfully witness to the gospel and fulfill the kingdom building work that God desires for us to be a part of isn't some pull up your bootstraps, muster up up enough human wit to just, or human will to just grit your teeth and bear through the trial kind of courage. This doesn't come from me. 
This kind of courage comes from the spirit at work within us and the strength available to us channeled into a life that is committed to living for Christ, a life prioritized on faithfully witnessing to the kingdom of God available through Jesus, a life that is willing to lay it all on the line. Surrendering ourselves for the cause of Christ in order to magnify him. Not us. And not cowardly bringing shame to the name of Jesus or the truth of the gospel by abandoning what it is that we've been called to or forsaking what it is that we say that we have our lives founded on, but courageously making less of us so that Jesus would be made much of. Are you in for that? Well, if you are, see this next. That faithfully witnessing to the gospel of Jesus Christ and fulfilling the kingdom building work he has for me requires me to surrender sacrificially. We come then to verse 21, a verse that is fairly famous in Christian circles. If you don't have this underlined in your Bible, grab your pen right now, make sure you do. It's a personal mantra of sorts for Paul, a personal declaration of his perspective on the life that he lives here and now. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Living in the flesh, Paul says, living here on this earth means full service to Jesus Christ. Christ is my life. Hobbies aren't my life. My career isn't my life. My family or the pursuit of one isn't my life. My friends, my possessions, my leisure, my pleasure, whatever it is, if it's not Jesus, it's not your life. Consider for a moment what has consumed your thoughts this week. What is it that you've spent your time really pondering? What has taken your mental energy over the last seven days? If we were to lay that out on a sheet of paper before someone else, what would they say that your life is? See, this declaration is really a part of the Apostle Paul's theology. He says something similar in 2 Corinthians 4.10. That we are to be always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be manifested in our bodies. The sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf ought to be the motivating force behind all that we do, think, or say in this world as we seek to faithfully witness to the shed blood and broken body of the God-man in the world that we live in so that the life of Jesus, the life that he rose to, might be ours as well. And that we might be able to say, as the Apostle Paul did, that to die, to die is gain. Paul goes on to elaborate on that thought in verses 22 and 23 in what seems to be, as we read this on its face, this internal struggle of two competing forces inside of him, as it seems like Paul is almost being ripped at the seams of the dichotomy between life and death in his life. Check it out, verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. 
I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. I mean, again, on plain reading, it can almost seem like Paul has a little bit of a death wish here, almost. Just wanting to be done with this life so that he can be with Jesus. But in the same time, he also makes the point to say that he doesn't view this life or the work that he has here as insignificant in comparison to eternity. In fact, it's just the opposite. You see, the struggle that Paul is seeking to convey here is intentional. He is pretending to be uncertain so that he can strengthen the argument that he is trying to make to the Philippians, which is the point that he makes in verse 24 when he says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So let's make something clear here for a second. Paul Paul doesn't have any choice in when his life comes to an end no more than you or I do. But the point that Paul is trying to make here is that he would be willing to forego the opportunity to be with Jesus Christ immediately, if he had the choice, for the benefit of the Philippians. He would be willing to continue in this life with the struggle against sin and temptation around every corner, with the attacks of the evil one and all of the pain and hardship and loss that comes with living in a sin-sick and fallen world so that the Philippians would be better off. I mean, Paul clearly establishes that he would prefer to depart from this world and to be with Jesus. I mean, wouldn't we say that too? Has not these last four months reaffirmed for us our desire to be done with this world and to be with Jesus? Can I get an amen? to that. But Paul is saying that he would choose to remain alive in the flesh out of his great love for the Philippian believers. Out of his understanding that because of his pursuit and passion for Jesus Christ, more time on this earth means fruitful work for the advancement of the gospel. It means more followers of Jesus made, more lives impacted for the good news. He would surrender what is far better for him as a servant of Christ with the necessary triumphing over his own personal desire. Paul is willing to sacrifice himself and his wants for the sake of the building up of the Philippian believers and the church of Jesus Christ. This is the picture of Christ-likeness. This should be the MO of the life of a follower of Jesus. I mean, there's very clearly an issue that Paul was seeking to address in the Philippian church of disunity in the believers that he wrote to. Turn your eyes over to chapter 2, verse 3, where he writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul then goes on to give the example of Jesus, who was the only one who had any sort of claim to equality with God, which so often we believe that we have, don't we? 
And yet even he surrendered to the will of the Father, made himself nothing, came down to this earth so that we could be reconciled to God, restored to our heavenly Father. And this is the kind of sacrificial surrender that should be the mark of a faithful witness to the gospel. A willingness to lay ourselves on the line, to lay our desires down for the needs of others. For the necessity of the kingdom work that God desires for us to do. You see, to live this out, to be able to have this kind of sacrificial surrender of our own desires in a world that prioritizes the needs and wants and desires of the individual above everything else might be the most effective tool that we have for the proclamation of the gospel in our world today. You know, I'm so often appalled at my own selfishness. It never happens in the moment, but it's always after situations or interactions with others that I am disgusted by my own arrogance and lack of humility. Maybe you can relate to this, but there have been many times throughout the duration of this pandemic where I have been so exasperated and frustrated by the restrictions and not being able to go where I want to go or see who I want to see, that I've paid no attention to the needs of those around me. The fears that plague the hearts of those with no hope. The lives stricken with anxiety and hopelessness, uncertainty. I mean, sure, this virus has not physically affected us here in Canada or even locally to Simcoe County as much as it has in other parts of the world, but it has in other ways. You know, the effects of what has happened here will, ver- will reverberate for, for months and years to come. And that presents us with an incredible opportunity not to reform governments, not to change social, social systems or even to champion the rights of the church. There's quite honestly still too much of that going on. Because we know that God himself is building the church. And Jesus said the gates of hell even won't prevail against it. The effects of COVID-19 won't prevail against what God is seeking to do in this world, certainly in the building of his church. So let's not worry about having to change the way that we meet for a little while. Let's not have a ridiculous battle over wearing masks in public places. And instead, why don't we focus on the task that we have been given of filling the seats or of overloading the live stream with people who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and risen to new life for you and me. Why don't we let God worry? Let God take care of the more important parts of fulfilling his will in this world. And why don't we focus on fulfilling the mission that he has given to us of speaking hope and life and joy into those with none? Supporting 
and caring for those afflicted by this pandemic, both inside the church and outside the church. Let me just say, this is as much for you as it is for me. It's focusing on ourselves and what we want or what we're missing out on is missing the mark and the opportunity that we have to be a light in the darkness, to be a part of the building of God's kingdom, to fruitfully labor for the gospel by serving sacrificially. To get really practical, here's three things that we can do right now to pursue this. First of all, look up here. Abandon your rights. Whether it be the common grace or the special grace of God, common grace being the life, the breath, the rising of the sun, the health that we experience, God's special grace being special movements of God's hand in amazing ways. Anything that we have in this life is a gift from God himself. Quite frankly, the only thing that we rightfully deserve, not even air quotes, the only thing that we rightfully deserve is to pay for all of eternity for the sins that we have committed against God. And Jesus took that away from us. The sooner we realize that, the easier it will be to surrender our desires and commit to living for him. The easier it will be to surrender for the sake of the kingdom. The easier it will be to have joy in the fulfillment of the work that God has for us when we appreciate the blessings that we have been given daily. Secondly, tear down your idols. Tear down the things that stand in the way of you worshiping, serving God with all that you are. To live is Christ. So what are you living for? What are you holding too tightly to? During the cholera outbreak in London of 1854, Charles Haddon Spurgeon abandoned the many speaking engagements that he had all over the country to remain in his church so that he could do the work that God had for him there. He wrote, During that epidemic of cholera, Though I had many engagements in the country, I gave them up that I might remain in London to visit the sick and the dying. I felt that it was my duty to be on the spot in such a time of disease and death and sorrow. See, if Charles Spurgeon had an idol of himself or his own popularity, which he regularly disparaged of, by the way, No doubt he would have traveled to the areas surrounding, areas that were less affected than this disease and safer for him to be in, to preach. But his faithfulness to the call of Christ in his own church, in the place that God had put him, moved him to stay and work where the Lord had called him. What are the things that you need to give up in order to serve faithfully Lastly, identify the areas of need. What areas of service has the Lord called you to? What gifts has God given you to utilize for the task you've been called? 
See, the context of these verses would, how, would have us look to how we can be serving specifically in the church, but we recognize there are limited opportunities to be able to do so in this physical building. The principle then extends out to where in the community can you be the church? Where in the community are you able to lend your efforts for those in need? How can you give of your time and your resources to serve those who are lost for the cause of Christ. It was amazing to be able to watch you detail all of those things in the chat just earlier in this service. Maybe there's a family friend or a neighbor that you recognize needs some work done done on their home. Maybe you need to support someone who's lost their job. Maybe you can make meals for the Hope Dinner, Dinner Summer Outreach Program, or you can take the time to deliver food to those who are unable to leave their home through the initiative that the food bank has started. Whatever it is, look for and pray for opportunities to fruitfully labor and trust the Lord for the outcome. Not doing it for thanks or praise to yourself, but doing it for the glory of God. Or how about this one? Where in the church would you normally be serving and what can you be doing differently in order to be serving in that same capacity, just in a little bit of a different way? We see here that Paul's focus was on what was more necessary for the Philippians, not for himself. We ought to have the same heart attitude, being willing to surrender ourselves sacrificially for the more necessary work that Jesus has for us to do. Lastly, see this. As a faithful witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, I must fulfill the kingdom-building work that he has for me. So I must prioritize purposefully. Wrapping this passage up now, verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Convinced and confident in God's working to deliver him from imprisonment, Paul believes firmly that God will allow him to come back to the Philippian church in the flesh. And there's every indication that he was able to do so. But these verses again underscore Paul's priority not to advance his own will, but to advance the gospel, to grow God's kingdom, specifically in the growth and development of the Philippian believers and their joy that comes from the salvation they have received, which God made available to them. As he was their representative of Christ, Paul's return to them would be reason for them to glorify God all the more for his delivering of Paul and his goodness to them in such ways. You see, Paul put such a priority in his life of glorifying God that whatever happened to him, good or bad, was reason for God to get the glory. Not for him to get the praises, not so that he could come back to the Philippians and hear, oh man, Paul, way to go, buddy. Way to just hang in there through that. I can't believe you did that. Good on you. I could have never done it. 
No, for Paul, it was whether I die or live, God is glorified. He purposefully prioritized all things in his life in relation to the fulfillment of the kingdom work God had called him to, which was the reason that the Philippians were together in the first place. The gospel in everything in his life meant that all glory went to God and God alone in everything that Paul did, which means that when the Lord worked, in this case, for his physical deliverance of imprisonment, the glory went to God alone. You see, the relationship between Paul and Jesus as a servant was so close. He was in such close fellowship with Jesus in his pursuit of him and in his service to him that whatever happened to Paul meant that all glory would go to Jesus and Jesus alone. See, the way that we prioritize our lives reveals a lot about the status of our relationship with Jesus. And prioritizing God and his glory first in our lives and foremost in who we are means that he is at the center of all that we do. Not that he is at the top and then everything just trickles down, but he impacts and influences every decision of every part of our lives. He is in all and through all. His purposes become our purposes. His will for our lives becomes our desire. So whatever happens, good or bad in our lives, he is glorified. And that translates into how we spend our time, how we spend our money, the decisions we make, those who we allow influence in our lives and the direction that we take. You see, God doesn't take a slice of the pie. He is the pie and everything stems from him. So good exercise for each of us this week to consider how we prioritize our things is to think about how a pie chart of your life would look. Asking yourselves, Do I prioritize God in all that I do? Am I using opportunities at work to exemplify Christ or am I a different person there than I am at home or at church? Does my rest and leisure time glorify God? Because that's important too. How am I at school or when I'm with certain people? Or how am I on social media? Do my actions and attitudes, what I post, like, and comment on, line up with the person that I claim to be and the faithful witness that I am called to be? Do I even think about working Jesus into conversations? Or am I too scared or too indifferent to make the change? Are those that I interact with who aren't following Jesus, noticing a difference in me? Am I equipping myself as best I can for the good of others? Am I communing with God on a regular basis to saturate myself with him so that I too am in such close fellowship with him that I can be united in purpose and priority and that others would see him in me? See, for those who confess to be changed by the gospel, 
The call for us is to participate in and fulfill the kingdom building work that God has for us by faithfully witnessing to the gospel of Jesus Christ in all that we do. It's not an optional pursuit. And in these days, even as it becomes tougher to hold to a biblically founded view on a number of fronts, the work that God has for us hasn't changed. In fact, it may even be that the necessity of courage, surrender, and proper priorities is even greater than it ever has been for us here. And we've talked over these last few months of the work that God would has, have for us as the church as we take steps to move out of this pandemic. This, quite frankly, is where we need to step up, church. The opportunities here are before us and we have a responsibility to take them. There are chances before you to express the confidence that you have in Jesus Christ as you navigate the fears and the anxieties of those around you. There are people who may be far more open to hear of the good news of Jesus Christ now than they have ever before. The charge to us is there. Will we take it? God has shaken up our priorities and our lives in these days. Will we faithfully respond by witnessing to the gospel? Courageously, sacrificially, purposefully, and joyfully fulfilling the kingdom building work that he has for us as we wait to see how God will move and work through these things whether by life or by death, honoring Jesus Christ in all things. I want to close our time in God's word together with a poem from the Puritan preacher and theologian Richard Baxter, who was famous for his perspective on preaching and his courageous defense of biblical truth. He stood during his time in ministry for unity amongst denominations and received heavy persecution from both sides that he was trying to unite in purpose and in call, even spending time in prison for not conforming to Anglican beliefs. He was faithful in the face of many trials and held to a perspective that shares remarkable similarity to that of the Apostle Paul. So may these words be on our hearts as we consider these things as well. Lord, it belongs not to my care whether I die or live. To love and serve thee is my share, and this thy grace must give. If life be long, I will be glad that I may long obey. If short, yet why would I be sad to welcome endless day? Christ leads me through no darker rooms than he went through before. He that unto God's kingdom comes must enter through that door. Come, Lord, when grace hath made me meet thy blessed face to see 
For if thy work on earth be sweet, what will thy glory be? Then I shall end my sad complaints and weary sinful days and join with the triumphant saints that sing my Savior's praise. My knowledge of that life is small, the eye of faith is dim. But tis enough that Christ knows all, and I shall be with him. Let me pray for us. Father, your word is clear and is challenging to us this morning. We know God as sovereign and Lord of all things, as holy and righteous and apart, that you have good things in store for us. You have a work for us to do here as your sons and daughters that can bring such joy to our lives. God, we also recognize that this work is difficult and challenging as these days grow more and more evil. So, Father, we ask for your strength. We ask, Lord, that you would lead us and guide us as we consider these things, as we think about what it is that you would be calling us to do, as we would think about the relationships that we have with non-believers who need to hear the good news of the gospel and what that might mean. So God, would you be near to us? Would your spirit be at work taking the truths that we know and believe to be true deep into our hearts and into our being so that it would be our eager expectation and hope that we would not be ashamed, but now, as always, we with full courage would honor Christ in our bodies, whether by life or by death. So be with us, Father, in these days. Strengthen your saints in the work of our hands and be glorified in all that we do, we ask, Father. And in all of these things, Lord, we would pray, come soon, Lord Jesus. For to be with you certainly is far better. As we remain here, Lord, would you continue to equip us for the work you have for us to do. Lay the path before us, Father, we pray and guide us in all of these things. For the fame and glory of your Son's name alone, we pray these things. In Jesus' precious name, amen.